Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deeper Still, a podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life as we seek to pay attention to the ways he calls us to go deeper still in relationship with him and with one another. My name is Sue Ann Camfield. I have the joy of being the host of this podcast. And as always, my friends, I'm so glad you're joining us today. So let me ask you a question today. Have you ever found yourself in a season where all of a sudden you look around and you come to this realization that life as you've always known it, it feels a little different. Something has changed. Maybe it's external circumstances that have created a natural state of transition. Maybe it's moving from college to adulting, or maybe it's parenting or retirement or grief of someone you love. Or maybe something has happened to you or in you that has started to shift the way you've always looked at the world. And it's causing something inside of your soul to feel, to be honest, irritated, to feel unsettled, to feel anxious, to feel disoriented. But you're not really sure why. You don't really know how to name it. You don't know what to do about it or how to move through it in a healthy way. Have you ever felt that way? I know I certainly have, and it's why I am so excited. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today because he is going to explain what this unsettled feeling is and how maybe if we pay attention to it and we surround ourselves with good people, that God can actually use those seasons to transform our very souls. Today on Deeper Still, Casey Tigret is my guest. Casey is a teaching pastor at Parkview Christian Church just down the road in Orland Park, Illinois. He is a spiritual director and the award-winning author of three books, including The Gift of Restlessness, The Spirituality for Unsettled Seasons, which is our topic of conversation today. I'm going to be honest with you, Casey and I cover a lot of ground. We cover a lot of ground, which makes for a slightly longer conversation today on Deeper Still than I typically do. But honestly, when I listen to it back, there's not a moment of it I would trade. So if you need to listen to it in a couple of doses, I would encourage you, do that. Do what you need. Do what fits your life. But don't miss this conversation because I learned so much from what he had to say, and I hope that you will too. So friends, whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself, Saddle up, settle in, and listen in as Casey and I go deeper still. Well, Casey, welcome to Deeper Still. It's so wonderful to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. You know, you and I, it's been a few years since we've connected face-to-face. I remember... uh, a few years ago, we were able to do a little bit of this in a different space and a different time, which was so much fun. And then for me, over these last couple of years, it's been so fun to watch you as you continue to publish books, as you podcast, as you are ministering in a local church, as you are doing um, spiritual direction and all the amazing ministry things, your walks with your dog, all the fun things. Um, it's just been really great to watch you from a distance and see the way God continues to use you and grow your ministry. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And the the dog does not get enough credit, I'm afraid. He, <laughs> he, he is the star. <laughs> he's the star of all your, your journey, your whole uh, life, right? He's, yeah. Well, you know, animals just, especially dogs, they just, they're, they want to, they're joiners. They want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. So 
whether you're writing a book or, you know, taking a walk or digging something out of the, they want to be part, they want to be part of it. So why not include the little guys, but thank you. Absolutely. I'm humbled that you've been watching. Well, I have been, you know, it's funny you say that about dogs. So we do not have a dog. I um, joke about the fact that we've traumatized our children because they've never had a pet. And so we're the worst parents in the world. Our kids haven't even ever had a goldfish. So they're missing out on a whole bunch of life. I'm so sorry. But it was funny. A couple of weeks ago, I I had written something that goes out. We call it the weekly update that goes out to our church. And I had written a story about encountering a person experiencing homelessness. And so um, I thought it was a really moving story. The following week, one of my colleagues writes a story about his dog. And he gets so much uh, feedback and encouragement, like all the letters come in about this story. I'm like, dude, I wrote a story about helping someone like this spiritual encounter and you write about your dog and you get all the love. And so I think there's something true to what you're saying. Dog stories. (laughs) If you're a public speaker, if you're right, you can, if you don't even tell the story, if you just show a picture, a picture of a dog will i it's like a it's like a tactic for making peace between warring nations if you could put up the picture of a dog <laughs> it just changes everything i'm so sorry that's terrible that your you know your eloquent story about <laughs> encountering jesus and the homeless was trumped right? by a canine but it <laughs> makes total sense and i've yes. seen it i've seen it happen and it's happened you know having a dog. I never thought we'd have a dog. I didn't think we'd talk about this today either, but I didn't think we'd have a dog ever. And we ended up getting a COVID dog. And so we got our dog in September of 20. And that apparently was number one, common. Number two, a terrible idea because he's the most (laughs) codependent little critter ever because we're, we were here for two years with him. And he, you know, in Chicago. So if, if someone's listening from another state that didn't get locked down like we did, uh, but we've been here with him for two years and he just now expects us to be around. And when we're not, oh my gosh, I mean, it's a rough day for the little guy. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, so they changed your life. Um, <laughs> yeah. On well, now I'm going to, I'm going to get a dog just so I can use it as a sermon illustration and post a picture. <laughs> so I don't have to, just for that. I, I can't, I can't say that's a wise choice, Suanne. If you get well, I'm it. I'm pretty competitive. You, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. So it, that may carry you a long way through those we'll sleepless nights of potty training. Oh, yeah. Lord have mercy. Um, well, Casey, we're not here to talk about any of that, although that's a great way to begin our conversation. But um, you have now published three books. Congratulations, by the way. That's no small thing to have the faithfulness and the perseverance to keep writing, to keep letting God work in your own heart and your own soul in a way that compels you to publish words. And so I just, I think that's amazing. You're a beautiful writer, by the way. And I would just be curious as we begin this conversation, what continues to bring you back to writing? Hmm. Well, that's an appropriate question Uh, because even as a person who writes, I tend to find more reasons not to Um, just because of the difficulty because uh, I think something happens when you write and publish and you learn about the transparency of it. 
someone comes back to you with a story that you told and you you told it, but you didn't know all the implications and they come back and they give you a different, they've turned the gem, so to speak, like they've read the story and, um, and they see something that you didn't know was there. And it's something that all of a sudden you feel this deep sense of like vulnerability over. And so uh, I think what, that's something that I, I, I'm always thinking about, especially with this most recent book on restlessness, because there are several stories in there that I really had to consider. Did I want to give this to mm-hmm. everyone? And so there are a lot of reasons not to write, but the reason to write is because it's the way that I make sense of God's self and others and on specific ideas. So if I stop doing this, uh, it's something that gets shut up in me and things stop, things start to not make sense anymore. And I think there's a prompting. I'd like to say it's a prompting from God. I think it's more me interacting with the world that God has made and then trying to figure out what to say about it. And then there's, there's spirit in that. I mean, obviously God is like, yeah, that would be helpful for you to say. Um, so there's some promptings there that come along with it. But for me, what keeps me coming back to it is I just don't know many other ways that I can best make sense of my world. And also it's been affirmed that when I do that, it helps others do the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a lot of conversations about, you know, you should write whether for, you know, whether someone's going to read it or not. And I see the value in that. I see how that would change your motivations. And I think you could put, you could put that on any profession. You know, you should pastor whether somebody's going to see it or not. Now that's interesting because I think pastoring requires another person, but what you do should come from a, a place of motivation that's not shaped by the desires of the person that you're doing it for. And at the same time, um, you do want someone to read it. You do want something to be changed by. You want to answer a question that they're actually asking. And so I like the art for art's sake. I'm always, I always think of writing more as art than as communication. Um, I want the things that I write to be able to be set to a metronome. I want it to be musical. I want there to be images that, that make people angry or make them stop or a way of using a phrase that just makes somebody uh, pause. I love, this may be going on more than you want, but I, I love poetry for that reason. I recommend poetry to people going on sabbaticals because most of the time, if it's a person you know, going on a sabbatical from a pastoral ministry, most of the time they're reading stuff that's very straightforward, very practical. And that shapes our brains in a certain direction. But poetry breaks it. It it uses words in a way that's so unconventional that it makes us go slow. It makes us shift into a different way. And I I would love to have prose that acts like poetry. Uh, so that's that's how I've always come into it, is that there is an art part of it, there is a sense-making part of it. And then there is there have just been there's been affirmations that, hey, when you do this, it's helpful. Um, so when I stop feeling like it makes sense of the world or it stops being poetic or people stop thinking it's helpful, then I'll probably stop and do something else, interpretive dance or something. I don't, (laughs) I don't know how to be any good at that, but uh, I'll do something different, but that's, what's kept me writing. And, and I think, I hope that's what keeps most people writing. 
mm-hmm. um, is this sense-making thing because it's it's about your investment. Yeah, and I I think even people listening, whether they write or not, there's so much truth in what you're you're saying about we all want to do something that helps us make sense of the world and that matters to other people. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into that more as we talk about some of the content in your book. But I think that's really a profound thing that so many of us as we're trying to walk through our everyday lives, make sense of God, of ourselves, of others, as you said, and, and God wires us uniquely. He puts things inside of us and we all express that differently. We all make sense of it differently. And then we all have different gifts to offer the world to help one another make sense of that. So I think that's a really beautiful answer. We talk about writing, but that applies to so many different things. Yeah. Parenting. Um, How many moments as a parent are you parenting your child in a way that tries to make sense of the world (laughs) Uh, so that they can make sense of the world? And, you know, there's a little extra layer there. And then there has to be some creativity because it's not like a download kind of moment. I so wish sometimes there was like a flash, like a USB slot in the back of our kids' heads. (laughs) You could just put the data on it and like Neo from the Matrix, I'm dating myself here. We talked about being old earlier. You just slide that USB in the back and just download everything they need to know. But that's not how any of it works. Books are books are wonderful. Writing is wonderful because you you're creating space. I hope to create a space for a restless parent to be creative in the ways that they parent, knowing that it's going to be different for them because I'm not them and their kid isn't my kid, but also because they have to make sense of the world and then hand that over as an inheritance to their kids. And so I hope there's some, I want it to create some space and to, for a person who's a, a parent or a pipe fitter or an orthodontist or a, you know, podiat- for whoever, a center fielder for the Cubs, whoever they might be, I want them to be able to see that their work ha- has a sense-making ability to it. And that's what God created us to do. Um, I mean, naming the animals is making sense of the world. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you do a beautiful job of it in this particular book and all of your books, but this book that we're going to talk to about today about this idea of restlessness, which I so appreciate because it's not an idea that we talk about much. It's not something, at least that I've come across, that people name. I think we all experience it. We all feel it. But few people actually name it and name it as beautifully and poetically, as you said, in the way that that you do. And so let's just start by talking about where the idea from this for this particular book came from and what is restlessness all about? Yeah, the idea of it is is from my own life. I I have I have struggled with restlessness as I would describe it for as long as I can remember. And I think it might be hereditary. Um, there's some folks, some people in my family who are just restless people. And I do believe that kind of stuff gets handed down through the, through the chromosomes and the genes. And, but it's that sense of, you know, there are times that pop up where I just feel like I need to change everything or just change something like, like, that feeling of being uh, uncomfortable in one's own skin. Like I just, I just need to move some things. And so there's a variety of w- different ways that I would use to solve that. Like I would just listen to some different music or to create a new, a different habit in the mornings or uh, I try to grow, grow facial hair um, and I, I just can't. 
It's I'm incapable. I don't know what it is, but I just end up looking like I need a bath. And so, uh, I'll come out of the bathroom with like a goatee thing started. And my wife will, will just look at me and go, what are you, what are you doing? We all know where this goes. We all know how this ends really. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a move to try and shift something. And so that's kind of the vanilla version. Uh, but as I thought about it, there are also restless times that cause us to make gigantic decisions, uh, that cause us to doubt things that were once unquestionable, um, about God's self and others, um, to wonder if the things we really want or that we're longing for are actually going to come true. And so, um, restlessness for me, it's that feel, it's that place where we are stuck. It's that irritated and unsettled season where we're just, we're stuck in the present tense. Um, I think about it in terms of, there's a saying that they often credit to bartenders. It's, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here when they're closing. And there's a version of that that I think is true of restlessness, which is you cannot go back. We're in a season of life where we know going back to the way things were is, it's not possible. But moving forward into the future is uncertain and unknown because we just don't know what's on the other side of it. And so it's not surprising that this, this book would also have a lot to do with um, the universal and the particulars universal for us and the particulars for um, the whole world or the universals for us and the particulars for me of 2020 through 2022. Um, no books written now will not have that as some kind of backdrop. And it was a time of like, we couldn't go back to March 14th before all of these things started to come unglued and everything happened and we can't go back to before all the unrest that's happened since. Uh, but we don't know what the future looks like yet. We still haven't been able to articulate that. So what do we do with the, the present moment? Restlessness is what we feel when we are stuck in that middle place. Yeah, I think you describe it so well. I mean, the fact that you call it unsettled and irritating right? It's an irritating feeling. It's unsettling. It's like, well, who wants to feel that? But it's true. It's true. And and we're going to call it a gift at the same time. We're going to get there in a minute. I, w- I don't want to get there quite yet. But that paradox is so interesting because who says being irritated is a gift? Who says being unsettled is a gift? And yet you unpack all these ways that restlessness is a gift in our own journey and our journey with God and our journey with others. And so I love that. But I, I want to sit on this song for just a minute because you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So I'm a Gen Xer. I, I know you are too. I mean, that song by Semisonic, what, I mean, not that I was ever in a bar in college, but if I happened to be picking up a friend at a bar in college or something, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they played that song every night at closing time. And I yeah. think it's one of the most iconic songs and best songs, especially for my generation. And there is so much truth that that, that you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here when we get to those places in our life. And like you said, it happens in this global level with the pandemic. You articulate that so well in the book. And I, I'm excited to unpack that further as we keep going. But we also experience it in seasons in our own lives. We've all gotten to that place where we realize things are changing around us. And maybe um, it's in our job or a vocation. Maybe it's in our friendships or our relationships. Maybe it's in our marriage. It's, you know, whatever it is in this season of life where we say, oh my gosh, things are changing. I feel disoriented. I feel unsettled. 
I know I can't stay here, but where do I go? And you call that a gift. Yeah. <laughs> say more about that. <laughs> oh, that's been the hardest part of this. I, I think talking about this book, that has been the question um, in a variety of different ways, the way you asked it and the way others, they're like, okay, but no. Like that's not, no one thinks that. And I think that's true. And the, the reason why is because it's not how we're naturally wired to function. Um, we, our brains are wired so that when there is threat, we have that, the limbic system that kicks in, the lizard brain, the thing that helps us survive. The, we either fight, we fly, or we flop basically. And there's a couple other words for it. But but when we encounter restlessness, especially, our survival mode kicks in. And I think there are ways, one of the interesting things about this book is how it's resonated with people who don't have a faith commitment, um, which, is which is surprising. <laughs> I, di I didn't expect that only because I'm writing from a faith perspective, but I think it shows kind of the universal piece of restlessness, but also how common it is, the way that we respond to restlessness. So, but within a faith tradition, um, a lot of times restlessness is seen as evil or sinful. Um, if you're restless, it's because you're not properly obedient or committed to God. Um, the Augustine quote, our hearts are restless, God, until, until they find their rest in you. That the appeal is made to that. It says, well, if you experience restlessness, then you're obviously not rested in God. And I I just would love to time machine back and talk to Augustine and say, hey, did you mean like forever? Um, because if I read you, I hear you going back to this over and over again. Um, but we've, we, we muscle up in times of restlessness and we try and fight it. And so we double our efforts. We try harder to get out of it or move through it. Uh, we use language like, I need to get over this, I need to fix this, I need to change something. And then sometimes we flee it, we pretend that it's not happening. Uh, we pretend that what we're feeling and sensing isn't real, even when it's been affirmed by people that we believe are wise and care about us. Like, yeah, this just might be a restless season for you. We're like, yeah, no, probably not. I, I just need to, you know, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. Or we just flop and we let it take us down. And that's where you see a lot of the cynicism uh, begin to arise. Um, I work a lot in spiritual direction with people who are in the stages of deconstruction and reconstruction. And one of the dangers of deconstruction is a full-on headfirst dive into cynicism where nothing can be okay. Um, the thing that prompts deconstruction is that some things are not okay. And that's good. Nothing being okay ever that's we we've tilted over now that comes from time to time and it ebbs and flows but a full release into that leads to cynicism and so you see those three responses and what i notice is in the story of jesus in the wilderness the three temptations are really kind of responses to those three human inclinations that we have to survive you know, Jesus is tempted to be powerful, to be spectacular, and to be relevant. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of his own restlessness, and I think anytime we see the wilderness image in the Bible, it's that's a, a code sign for restlessness. He, in the middle of his, he simply says, you don't understand, something bigger is happening here. 
this is me shorthanding the entire temptation narrative. So I apologize to Bible scholars listening, but uh, Jesus basically says, there's something bigger going on here and you're missing it. And his response to restlessness is not to fight or to fly or to flop. His response is to abide. And he just remains in it. And if we're willing to do that, what happens is restlessness becomes a gift because then it can be our teacher. Mm-hmm. If we're willing to stay in the middle of it, we're able to see some things that we wouldn't have been able to see if we hadn't been led into that restless season. And that's the thing about the temptation story of Jesus. Uh, you have the baptism, and this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then something that I missed for years, which was the narrative says, and then Jesus was led into the wilderness. Well, if you lead someone somewhere, it means it wasn't their idea. So this wasn't part of Jesus's grand plan. This was what happens. And I can see it for us too. It's what naturally happens when you're a human being in skin. You are led into these places of Mm in-between. I'm sure Jesus would love to go back to the Jordan and the heavens ripping open and the dove coming down or go on forward into the healing and calling disciples and teaching and but all he had was the present. And so he remained And Mark. Mark has a great picture of it. He says that Jesus was with the wild beasts and the angels attended to him. Mm. Man, that is such a picture of restlessness. Someone who's restless in their marriage believes that it's about to destroy them. And yet maybe just maybe there's something beautiful that may come. Mm. When people stand at that precipice, when they're realizing they're at this space, I can't stay here. I don't know where to go. Maybe they are being led into the wilderness. They're digging in their heels or responding to it in another way, the other ways that you suggested. How do they get to a place where they're willing to embrace the restlessness rather than do some of those other things that you described? First and foremost is is really just the willingness to be honest and just name it for what it is. Uh, instead of calling it sin or unfaithfulness or a bad burrito or you know any number of things that we use as excuses, just being able to to name it. And I I just I have so much compassion for people because I've been there, who are standing on that, because it's so hard to just call it what it is. One, because if once we do that, we have immediately said there are no simple solutions to this. And two, because to admit to it and to be honest about it means that we're, we're in it for the long haul. Um, the restless times are usually a marathon, not a sprint, and a very slow one at that. And so I think the honest naming of it and maybe the honest naming of it to God, just saying, I, I'm stuck. I feel stuck. And uh, naming it in, in, in the face of a culture that kind of says, if you're not moving forward, you're, there's no such thing as stagnant. You're either growing or you're not. I don't know that I agree with that. I think there are times when we just are. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not necessarily growing, but we're not declining either. We're just sort of here. Um, that seems to be wilderness in a, in a nutshell is I'm just sort of here. Um, there are things to be discovered, but I'm just here. 
Right. In our in our American Westernized culture, that's not okay. You know, it's 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 hard to be honest about when we feel stuck. It's hard to be honest when we don't know what to do. It's hard to be honest to say, I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like I'm I know what to do. Um, and you throw in that for people of faith to add on to the layer to feel like it means I'm somehow not trusting in God in this situation, or I'm, I'm not, I'm experiencing this restlessness in a way that I'm supposed to be experiencing peace and life and joy. And I'm experiencing the opposite of that. And so what does that mean? And so I think there's so much wrapped up into our own narratives and our own culture that we bring into this that may make it even more difficult for where we sit today to really embrace this. You know, it's, it's kind of in the mental health world. I think the cry for mental health is, it's okay to not to be okay. You know, we have to tell people that we have to give permission for people to say it's okay to not be okay. And, and I, I hear you saying that for people that find themselves in the space, like it's okay to just say, I feel stuck and I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That honesty is, is key. I think the other thing that is key is uh, this is not something we should, I mean, we're never unaccompanied. Uh, God is God is in the midst of the restlessness as much as he is in the non-restlessness or the restedness. Uh, so we're never alone in this, not only because God is always with us, I believe spirit is always with us, but also because, I mean, this is one of the most common human, restlessness is one of the most common human experiences. If you feel restless, you are on a well-trodden path. Um, so you are not alone and you will not be alone. And so in the vein of that, having someone like a spiritual director or a, a guide of some kind who understands how to stay in these spots, um, not your friend who's just wants to like, we just need to get you up and out of the house and encourage. Okay. Those people are great. I'm glad they exist. I'm glad they're in our lives, but these are the kind of people who are willing to do the long, slow work with you. And most spiritual directors that I know myself included, we've, we've either experienced it enough to know not to short circuit the process, or we've been trained well enough to know how to sit with someone in the middle of all of it and just help us just to help the person not let the cheese slide off their cracker, so to speak. Like, how do we keep you vertical, upright, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and and hearing? Because there's a great deal that's being communicated in these wilderness moments. Um, for Jesus, it's something bigger is going on. And this is a charge for being the beloved. For Moses, it's, I know who you are. You don't know who you are anymore because your Egyptian family wants to kill you and your Hebrew family doesn't really care who you think you are. But I know who you are. Mm. Elijah is, I think I'd just rather die. <laughs> and in the wilderness, it is, have something to eat, take a nap. <laughs> It'll be all right. Just don't go anywhere. Have a, have a cake, have a nap. We'll talk about this in a minute. And so yeah. those, those are the, we need people who will step alongside of us and say, maybe you just need to sit in the middle of this and I'll help you do that. 
Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think, um, like you said, that's not always going to be our best friend. That's not always going to be our mom or, or, you know, our brother or sister or spouse. But sometimes we have to actually go and seek that person who's willing to and trained to, as you said, um, journey through that with us. And I think that's so helpful and so good. I think more and more people today are looking for people like that. I think more people are looking for spiritual directors, looking for, okay, I just have to say, Casey, you said who... um, don't want to let the cheese slide off the cracker. Is that, is that what you said? I had to write that down. <laughs> Talk about poetic and image. I was like, wait, what did he just say? Now, uh, if someone doesn't want you as a spiritual director now listening to this, I'm like, sign me up for, <laughs> sign me up for that guy. I love that. <laughs> oh, I have to give credit where credit's due. That is a, that is a Brennan Manning image that I borrowed from his book. Uh, I think the Ragamuffin Gospel, but man, we use it in our house all the time. Wow, like I, I, I feel it. like my cheese has done slid off the cracker here. <laughs> uh, that's going to be the podcast quote that I put on the graphic when we publish this episode. Yes. Right there. <laughs> I'm so happy about that. So glad. Oh, uh, we were in such a beautiful space there, and I just ruined it. I'm so sorry. I just no. I couldn't help it. But Everything we need guides for the there. journey. We need Everything people. That's belongs. right. Yeah. So, Casey, your book is organized around a set of questions that I think are so profound. They are so good. You call them good and desperate questions that mm-hmm. lie at the heart of who we are as humans. And I just yeah. want to, we're going to talk about a few of these. We won't get to all of them, but I want to let our audience know what those questions are. And we're going to spend a t- a, some time talking about a few of them. Does that sound sure. good? Absolutely. Great. So here they are. Um, where do I belong? What am I here for? Is there enough? Can things be mended? Will we be protected? And can we be rescued? So basically, really easy questions that you tackle um, through the book as you try to answer these. But I think they they are seriously so profound. And, And you tell people how important it is to create space, to give the safety and the grace to ask these deeper questions in their life where do I belong? What am I here for? I mean, at what point in our lives have we not, all of us, asked some of those questions? And so let's start with where do I belong? Because you say perhaps this is the greatest question that we can ask. Why is that such a significant question, especially in these unsettled seasons? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, those questions, I think this will be a good way to segue into the answer to your question. They they came out of, I see these as the questions that prompted each line of the Lord's Prayer. So if, as I was reading the Lord's Prayer, I realized these were picked, these these particular lines that Jesus picked to teach his disciples were chosen for a reason. And as I looked at each one, I thought, well, there's, there is a question behind each one of those. And they're the most human questions ever, just like you mentioned. Like, there's not a time in our life. There, there, at any point in our life, we will be dealing with one, if not more, of those. And so I felt like what Jesus was teaching was at the heart of this prayer is the heart of humanity, of what it means to really be human, which I think what it really means to be human is also what it really means to be spiritual. Um, since we've been breathed into, we're, we're inspired dust, so to speak. Um, anything human is spiritual. Mm. So hopefully that isn't cheap and spiritual, but it just teaches us the interaction between the two. But belonging, 
Belonging is a huge part of that because when we're stuck and we have no idea how to go back and no idea where forward is, one of the first things to come into question is, where do we fit? A lot of times because our going back is to try and recover a sense of place, a sense of where we belong in the world. Maybe it's a physical place. Maybe it's a stage in life. Maybe it's a form or a type of faith that we used to hold so tightly to and used to give us so much life. And now, you know, I even dig down into like, we used to listen to that worship artist and we used to listen to that podcast and we used to listen to that author. And now it's like, I just don't know that I'm there anymore. I just don't know that that's the kind of faith that I'm living but I have no idea. I mean, where do I go from here? And so it, it plops us in that moment. And so I see in, in times in people who are going through restlessness and, and specifically when it comes to faith, but in other forms of life, a lot of times what they're doing is trying to understand where they belong in the scope of their life. And there are two different, I think there are two different kinds of belonging. So in the book, I talk about uppercase B belonging and lowercase B belonging. Um, uppercase B is the fact that, and I am under the conviction that we all always constantly belong to God. Um, we were created very good, tov meod in the Hebrew, exceedingly pleasant and wonderful, and God never changed his mind about that. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. We are his beloved kids in whom he's well-pleased. And we are born to be transformed into something more and more beautiful as we go. That is always true. That capital B belonging is unassailable. What causes us to forget that is the lowercase b belongings, which are little things. They're not little, but they're smaller things than the big B ones that change constantly over time. So that can be anything from moving from one place in the world to another um, I grew up in Southern West Virginia. Um, I had a lovely accent and I had friends and family and then I moved. And so a lot of those connection point changes it connections point connection points changed. And then people said, Oh, so you're, you, there are certain expectations we have of you or I have of myself because, but now I don't live there anymore. And so who am I? and what's different and what changes or people who are moving from a, one particular faith tradition to another or people moving from singleness to being married. Um, that's a big jump. And you now belong to something lowercase that's different. And those lowercase belongings, even down to like the metaphors we use for God, uh, those things are built to change. Sometimes what happens is people think they're leaving the faith when actually what they're doing is they're just shifting out their lowercase belongings. Um, That's a complicated thing to talk about, but one of the great images that, that I found that's in the book is about the image of making a bed. And I actually spoke at a, at a university and I asked them, I said, can I have a bed on stage and do this? And they were like, sure. And they did it. It was wonderful. But if you thought about the uppercase B as like the frame and the mattress, those are the solid, unshakable, unmovable pieces. They're always there. And then the lowercase Bs are the things like the, the sheet, the bottom sheet, the top sheet, the blanket, 
the pillows, the decorative pillows, if you're into that kind of thing, whatever else you, you have as part of it. Um, what happens is we spend our life kind of making the bed, creating these belongings. We belong to our family of origin. We belong to this church. We belong to this way of seeing God. We belong to a way of seeing ourselves. Like, this is who I think I am. And this is what I think I'm capable of. And then something happens. Uh, physical illness changes what we're capable of. Our, there's divorce in our family. There's a shift in our faith. Sometimes these are negative events. Sometimes they're positive. And then what happens is we end up unmaking the bed. And so I can't be connected in this way anymore or this way. And the tendency is to believe that that, um, that that just doesn't go anywhere. But what I think is the restlessness that we feel is a chance for God to teach us about here's where you belong, capital B, now. Let's rebuild some of those lowercase things. Uh, because this is never in question. You will always be safe. You will always be loved. Well, and so one of the reasons I think, yeah, I think one of the reasons that is so helpful is because it provides this security in the midst of a disorientation. It's security and um, identity in a place where we are feeling unsettled. And I think what that allows us to do, and maybe I'm wrong, you're the expert in this, but just as I'm listening to you talk and I'm filtering through the places in my life where I have felt like that or currently feel that way, we, we've had some changes in my husband's family over the last two years. My mother-in-law passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband's grandma passed away in a very short period of time. My father-in-law is getting remarried. We're, you know, going to a wedding this fall and, and we are happy for my father-in-law and yet we are in this place of feeling, um, this feels different. This feels like a different family than what we have belonged to. And so that is creating a disorientation. And there is a, I'm just being really transparent now. There is a guilt that comes with that because you think, well, why am I feeling this way? <laughs> you know, am I doing, I must be doing something wrong or how do I grieve something that, that was, and yet know that what's coming is not a bad thing. And so all what you're saying about the bigger place belonging is when we can come back and know that that's unchangeable. I yeah. think it might allow us as we remake the bed, um, to be more less anxious. You use that phrase a lot throughout the book, which I love, a non-anxious presence, a non-anxious posture in the world. And so when we're disoriented in our belonging or our purpose, but we have that bigger story that we're part of, it allows us to come into those spaces in a way that feels less anxious, even though we're restless. I could yeah. be way off there. You just let me have a little therapy session with you. But what does that is? Would you do you resonate, or would that would you say that sounds true? Yes. Yeah. Grief. Grief is a sweet, sweet word for this. Um, and grief can be the loss of someone, but grief can also be the loss of these little be belongings that we've been talking mm-hmm. about. It, it's not easy to lose something that you are deeply attached to. Um, we were built as human beings for attaching to, to attach to things. Um, even if you just took human development, we attach to the, the, we look at our parents and the look we receive back, we form a sense of attachment. And then we spend the next 17 years detaching from that person. Like my it's so cruel. A, I yes, know, it's my daughter's, cruel. You know this. You're way ahead <laughs> yes. of me on this. But my daughter's a junior in high school, and and we started to see it happening, and we were like, "Well, that's 
why would she? And then like, oh yeah, well, okay, this is what we we teach our kids to be independent, and then they decide to leave. We're like, wait a minute, no, like this is what you taught me to do. That's uh, right. But there's that natural inclination, and then they re it. They, so they detach from us, but then they reattach to something else, to a career, mm-hmm. to someone else, to their own form of faith. But there is a grief in between there, and sometimes the grief is something that was dependable and solid and trusted is gone. Um, sometimes there is that feeling of guilt. Um, I am careful with people. Whenever I hear the word should, that's a red flag. Um, obligation is is not always inappropriate, but it's typically toxic. Sometimes it's necessary. There are obligations we keep. There are shoulds that we need to pay attention to. Uh, well, every should we should pay attention to. If you feel a sense of obligation, it's a learning moment. It's a chance for God to to actually speak. But ultimately, that is about us and the way we feel about our previous attachments. Mm-hmm. We grieve people because people are worth grieving, because they lived a life that is worthy to be missed. And we grieve because we have no idea what life will be with, like without them. And it's in the middle of that that God teaches us about ourselves, about our relationships, about who we are, about who we will be. And that's, that is that gift of restlessness, is that we used to belong to a person. We don't belong to them anymore. They're no longer here or they're no longer part of our lives. I think of that especially now, and you can edit this out if you want, but now that we get closer to an election season, I think about the ways that we used to belong to people and now because of the tribalism and, and vitriol of politics, we don't have friends anymore because of what has happened. And that's a belonging, that's a grief. And so some of us are in the restless place between, look, if I have to choose between my friendship and this, what do I choose? I have no idea how to move forward without them. Mm. How do we do life with all of this crackling negativity that's flying through the air? Yeah. And I think, you know, the between the pandemic and this next election cycle, I think it is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And I think so many of us during the pandemic, you mentioned this in the book also, but that was a place of disorientation of, of feeling restless and this loss in relationship and community over politics and whatnot, where it was very disorienting. I mean, we had conversations I never thought I would be having and, and um, not good ones. And it, it still is, I think there is still a rebuilding and a healing to that. And I hope, and I pray as we go into this next season that we have collectively learned enough that maybe we can repair some of those things. Maybe I'm optimistic that we've learned how to maybe treat one another differently going in, or it's going to go the other way. But I, I try to believe that we've learned something through all of this, but it's it's rough. And, and that is a place I think so many people uh, collectively were feeling very restless. And belonging is, is, that, is that issue at the heart yeah. of that, is to belong to a country and how do we fit together uh, belonging is what prompted a lot of the the 2016 and 2020 political crises. People who felt like they just didn't have a voice and didn't fit in American politics. 
And I, I see that all over the place. I see that in people changing lanes or traditions in their faith. I see that a lot in 20-somethings that I work with who are talking about career. They're, they're trying to figure out where they fit. Can you and, say more Say more about that? What are you hearing? Well, there's the ca- the calling question. So this sort of overlaps with the second chapter about what am I here for? But in a, in a world in which there are lots of expectations, and I don't think this is true just of our 20-year-olds. I think this has always been true. There are so many expectations from a previous generation of what work and career looks like. You know, so I, we talked about our senior pastor, uh, is, is retiring after 33 years from the church that I'm at 33, 34, something like that. Um, I don't imagine I'll see that in this next generation because the working folks in their twenties that I know, they are doing like five different things. They are working one particular job and then they're doing DoorDash and then they're also doing an online thing and they have an Etsy store and they're like, so they have a diversity of things they they're doing. And so their sense of like, how do I belong to an economic or a vocational, um, the idea of going to work? What does that even mean? I mean, I don't leave that. I have my offices at the house. It has been since November of 20 of 19. So what does that even look like anymore? And there's a sense of belonging there. Like, where do I fit in the flow of all of this? Now, we may say it's actually good. Um, there actually is a good thing if you don't feel like you fit in an economic system. But there is a sense of where do I belong if if I feel like I'm called to ministry? Where do I belong in the, in the scope of church work or not-for-profit work? So it, there are all kinds of places where that trickles down and becomes a pretty relevant question. Yeah, that's all. So many different directions we could go off of that. But I, I'm thinking about this idea of purpose. And I have kids that are in, my, in their 20s. And so I, I hear what you're saying in that generation. You know, In pastoral ministry, we talk to people all the time who kind of in that, that space where they want to know, how do I know what to do? What is, you know, what is my calling? What does my vocation look like? And it is different for them than I think it, it was for us. But some of the universal questions... I think still apply. And one of the things I really love as you know, you go through this chapter, what am I here for? Is you talk about the difference between asking, what do I want to do? And what do I want to love? Or what do I love? What is God calling me to love? And I think this distinction between trying to find this one thing that we're supposed to do versus what do I love? Mm-hmm. I think is so helpful. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that for a minute. Oh, yeah, this is a heartbreaking and lovely thing that I'm I'm living kind of in the middle of myself. You know, I I I don't talk about this in the chapter, but I I accepted a call in my the faith tradition I grew up in. I accepted a call to be a pastor when I was a senior in high school. Um, I had initially set to go to college and be a pharmacist, uh, but I'm terrible at math and science. And so I think God actually rescued a whole bunch of people by not making me a pharmacist. <laughs> um, but as a senior, there was a, I had this sense that, that that's what God wanted me to do. And I had this really defined idea of what it was. It was a, I was in the church of the Nazarene at the time. It was a Nazarene church 
in Southern West Virginia and I would be the senior, the senior pastor. And so that's what I felt like my calling was. So fast forward, let's see, 96. I don't want to even do the math on that in my head, but it's been a while, been a hot minute. And so here I sit in the South suburbs of Chicago as a part-time theologian in residence and a spiritual director and not a senior pastor, not in Southern West Virginia and not in a Nazarene church. And so that calling idea, I don't feel like I ever left my calling behind, but I think the practicalities of it changed. And what I realized was I don't love being a senior pastor. Mm. That's not, that's not a, what I'm wired for. Um, but it's not something that God has stirred me to address. What I love is the conversations around theology, spiritual formation, I love uh, the act and the craft and the art of writing. I love teaching. I love whether that's academic settings or local. So I think there is a sense of finding. Now, it's not just what you're passionate about, but it's that thing that is at the heart of how you step into this great commandment to love God, self, and others with everything you have. Um, I talk to so many people who they feel like, so I don't know. Did you grow up with the choose your own adventure books? I did. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I hear they're making a comeback by the way. I have heard that side also. Side note. Yes. But I, 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 I work with people sometimes in there. I think they sense that their life with God is a choose your own adventure book where one choice is they live and win. And the other one is they get eaten by a bear or something terrible happens, which is how those books always went. You either like escaped to the island, became king, or you died a horrible death. And they have that sort of deterministic, single focused way of seeing it. And sometimes they're in the middle of trying to choose between great and great. They're like, well, I could work for this non-for-profit that helps kids with HIV. Or I could work for this church and use my gifts in leading worship. Which one of those do you think God wants me to do? And I just want to go, I think he wants you to choose. Like, I don't know that there's one of those. Like, you're not choosing between working with kids with HIV and you know, robbing a bank, like you're choosing between great and great. So what do you love? And even, uh, my friend, Justin McRoberts talks about this in his book, sacred strides, who he's just a phenomenal, uh, speaker on this. You may try something that may not work, but what you're doing is you're following the thing that God has stoked in you. And that aligns with that idea of loving God, self and others with everything you have. So, when I have someone who's like, what should I do? I'm like, what do you love? What's the thing that you feel like most connects with what God is up to in the world? And mm-hmm. if there are two things, choose. Um, you trust God. Um, what if God trusts you? And you know what? If it doesn't go the way that you think it should, then we'll figure it out from there. Um, Obviously, that's easy to say <laughs> when you're not the person who has to make the decision. But there, I feel like there is some wisdom to that. And I think we get caught and we get pinched by our desire to have it be one thing. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, not only is there so much wisdom in that, but there's freedom in that, right? There's sure. freedom in that when we understand that. And going back to your bed frame analogy, when you know the frame is solid, right? Also, 
choosing between great and great is kind of like making your bed, right? I'm pushing that analogy a little bit, but I do think there is something to that that you can rest secure that. Our, our, the thing that we are called to most be is more like the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we, we have that as our primary calling, or as you say, you know, to love God and to love others, when that is our primary calling, and we know we can do those things, no matter what adventure we choose, there is freedom in that and there's beauty in that. And there's, there's a, a sense also of knowing, you know what, if we choose the nonprofit, we don't like it. You don't have to stay there forever. And you, you know, God may use that, that experience to teach you more about who you are and who he is. And, you know, it's something you keep pointing us back to throughout the whole book is all of this is about transformation, right? The restlessness, the questions, the sitting in the wilderness, um, all of these things lead to us being transformed more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. And so I, I don't want us to lose sight of that either, because I think having the why, the kind of end goal, not that transformation is an end goal. I, I especially, I just said that to a spiritual director. I, I didn't mean it. I promise I take it back. But when transformation is, <laughs> when, when transformation is, uh, you know, the value in all of that, I think there is, there's something freeing in that. Yeah. Yeah. The freedom is important uh, and I, because I think the freedom gives us will be the thing that helps us stay. Um, as, as strange as that sounds like freedom has this ability to plant us somewhere. Um, if we chose it, because there is there, I've, I've, I've just grieved with people and over people who they're doing something because they feel like it's the kind of suffering they need to have. Mm. Like, this is really hard, but I feel like I should do it because it's hard. I'm like, mm. Gosh, I just don't know. I don't know that that's. I don't know that's life and life to the full mm-hmm. that Jesus was talking about. Maybe it is, but do you love it? And what's it doing to you? Like, who are you becoming as a result? Are you? I've just watched ministry and different kinds of work make people bitter at not at God because they don't feel comfortable doing that, but they bitter at themselves or bitter at the people in their life or the whoever encouraged them to take that role. And I'm like, I just don't think this is it guys. I just don't. It's good. So good. So helpful. I mean, I, I I just peeked at the time and uh, how this conversation, I thought, golly, we are just scratching the surface, but I, I think it shows restlessness, you know, this topic, it's something to sit with. It's, it's not um, something easy. It's complex and it's complicated and it brings up questions that we need to ask ourselves and we need to ask one another and we need to ask God. And it is a place that we need to just kind of lean into more and more. And so hopefully people listening are, are feeling that in this conversation, there's a lot to it, but it's good and it's worth it. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, Casey, I have I have one last question for you. And I will just say for the listeners, um, Casey, that you have done a podcast on your book. Uh, they can go and listen uh, on your website is probably the best place to direct people, which Absolutely. I will do in uh, the end of this episode. But you have gone through many of these top- topics and can go um, a little deeper than what we could even today. If people are intrigued, they can listen to more. So I want to make sure that people know that uh, your blog, all kinds of things that you're doing uh, really help help create some clarity around this uh, for people who are interested in going a little deeper. So you said, we're just skimming the surface. 
Yes. Um, well, Casey, I ask everyone that comes on the show one question. I call it my deeper still question. Um, what I love about your whole book is that your book is a deeper still book. I mean, it's it's constantly pulling back the layers and asking the deeper soul transforming questions that we need to be asking of ourselves, of one another. And so the question I like to ask here is, is where in your life right now is God calling you to go deeper still? I think there are a couple places. Um, I uh, identify as Enneagram 4. And I don't know if your listeners have any familiarity with that. Uh, you're grinning, so you do. Um, we we talk about the Enneagram a lot on this show, okay. so absolutely, yeah. So you know the fours are, we are the least represented population and we have to be the most unique. So of course you would ask one, a question with a single answer and I would give you two uh, <laughs> because I have to be different. Uh, but I think the two things are the deeper places God is inviting me to is the nature. Number one is on the nature of healing, you know, what it means to be well. And honest to goodness, I had not thought of this until you asked the question earlier. Um, I think sometimes I have a very limited view in my own life of what it means to be emotionally, spiritually, and relationally well. And I'm not, I don't feel like I'm unwell right now, but there are some places where I think God is inviting me to explore that a bit more. And for my sake and for the sake of how I might help others move towards that. So that's one thing. The other thing is something that I've been sitting with for a while, but it's the concept of kindness and um, how often that isn't a conversation or an idea or a concept that we talk about in terms of spiritual transformation. Um, it is a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> which should put it on our list immediately. But I, I don't know the last time I heard a, a sermon preached on kindness or sometimes I think there is a, there is the sense that um, kindness is a kind of weak, a weak thing or a, uh, an ineffective thing. But I just, the conviction that if faith does anything to us, it should make us kinder progressively has been stuck in my belly for quite a while. So I don't know if that becomes a book. I don't, I don't know if it becomes anything, but it's, it's definitely been in my head a lot lately. So, so those are the two things, just the nature of healing and uh, what in the world is up with kindness. And can we dive into it a bit more? Well, if it encourages you, no one else has said those answers on my show. So you, you are the most unique. <laughs> so you win. Enneagram <sighs> four. I'm an Enneagram yes. four too. So we, I have to encourage where where encouragement is needed. So well, we done. are both affirmed mutually. That's right. Bit. That's right. Love that though. Healing and kindness. What a great word to end on. So Casey, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for giving up some of your time to teach us about this idea of restlessness, and um, just excited for the way God continues to use you in all of the many ways that you're doing this work. So thanks so much for being here. You're so very welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, friends, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you learned as much as I did about the importance of naming these seasons in our lives and reaching out to others and trusting God when we're in them, that there is something to be received, that we're not alone, and that God will carry us through. 
If you're interested in learning more about Casey, The Gift of Restlessness, his work as a spiritual director, his other books, his blog, check out his website at caseytigret.com. I promise you won't be sorry. You can also find the podcast that I mentioned there. It's called Restlessness is a Gift. And so be sure to check that out. I do believe Casey is an important voice for our church today. So give him lots of love. Buy his book. Let him know you listened to this episode today. As always, be sure to follow Deeper Still on your favorite podcast platform. Do one better. Leave a review. That would be amazing. And share this episode or one of your other favorite episodes with a friend. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with, get this, so excited about this, Tracy Butler will be here in the Deeper Still studio. For you locals especially, you know that Tracy is the longest running female meteorologist on ABC7 News here in Chicago. She is a Chicago icon. She is also one of the most kind, the most generous souls I have had the privilege of meeting. And she is a deep woman of faith. She has generously agreed to share her story with us, a portion of which includes her journey with breast cancer. So I would encourage you, be sure to come back and join us for that. Until then, pay attention to how God is calling you to go deeper still in your places and spaces that he has called you to and go in God's grace. Mm -hmm.